Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is First Rounders, a podcast by Nature Biotechnology. I am the host of this show. My name is Brady Huggett, and the guest for this episode is Basil Dahiat. He's the co-founder, CEO, and president of Zencor, a company that has been um, around for more than two decades, and he's been basically in charge of it the entire time. I did this recording. We met at uh, the J.P. Morgan conference, actually. Basil was out there for that, so was I. So we had this conversation in one of those hotel rooms that probably many of you have been in. And we talked about uh, his parents coming to America. Basil was born in this country, but his parents immigrated here. And we talked about what it takes to run a biotech for as long as he has, what it takes for a biotech to survive as long as his has, and um, when it's time for a CEO to speak out on social issues, why that is important to him, and sometimes why it's important for the company itself. So we talked about all that and much, much more in this episode of First Rounders. I think that's it for now. Let's just get into it. Here it is, your First Rounders podcast with Basil Dayat. Listen up. Yeah, I've done uh, some research, so I know a little bit. Oh, good. Someplace along the line, uh, your parents are from Jordan. Yes. Both of them? Yes. But were you born in the States? I was born in New York. My, oh, dad was, my dad was in grad school in upstate New York, getting his PhD in comparative literature. Uh, I was born, my sister was born three years before me, so it was during his PhD. Where, where, where in upstate New York? SUNY Binghamton. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so is he a, like a professor? No, no. Is he a writer? He is, in a way he was, he ended up um, working for the Voice of America for his whole career in, in radio journalism. And then became, you know, high up in the management uh, of, of the Voice of America because, of course, he had his language, Arabic language skills with also yeah. utterly fluent in English at a very, very high level. And Voice of America is the international radio broadcasting in the United States, which, of course, over time evolved into Internet and Twitter yeah. and podcasts and all that. He retired a few years ago. So they, is that why he came to the States? For no, he came to the States. He was one of the first three or four people in Jordan to get to go to grad school. Uh, when he... Um, started college, there were no colleges in Jordan. He had to go to Baghdad yeah. with a few other Jordanians who sort of were, you know, selected out of this tiny little protector to the British Empire that became a country uh, a few years before. And he was one of the smart, driven kids. And then he got to go to grad school after teaching for a few years. And he and my mom married in Jordan. And then within, I think, a few months, boom, they're in America. Okay, so he was somehow selected for college. He's smart. But I mean, you who selected him? They, oh, the, the government. Yeah, the government, the teachers. Like first, it was in in the village where yeah. I think he could go to ninth grade. Then he got to go to the, the town nearby where it was, you know, a high school. Yeah. And then from there, it was, you know, he took exams. It was, it was a British based system. You take the exam, and oh, you can go to college, kid. Okay. Happy, right. happy times. Go to Baghdad, right? And so then he goes to grad school. Yep. Um, with his then, wife, with brand his new wife, wife whose right. family is from the same village. And also, was she in school too? Nope, nope. No, she she had gone to teaching college and was teaching for a year, and then she got married and started having kids. So the, the thing about the grad school is, uh, and now correct me where I'm wrong, but like comparative literature is not something that's usually conducive to an easy career or an no, easy sir. path to a career, right? No, sir. So he wasn't thinking about like, listen, if I get this degree, then I can become, I don't know, an accountant. I, I can become. No, I think I think part of it was well, Learning English really, really well was an important academic goal for them because English was the language of the world, yeah. right, and commerce yeah. and all that. And I think it was just 
I, I don't exactly know his logic behind that, but it was just get a PhD in another country. And I think the default path was then go back to Jordan. You're one of the most educated people in the country. Right. You are going to now have a position in government somehow or somewhere and be an important person. And he yeah. could have easily, you know, as the country was growing, been a minister or whatnot. I, clearly, because the people in his trajectory had done that. And we actually did move back to Jordan when I was about two and a half. Oh, I didn't know that. There's pictures of me from that. And I have very dim memories of certain things um, because that was the game plan. He finished his PhD. Family goes back to Jordan. It was me and my sister at the time. And he and my mom decided, you know what? No, we want to raise our kids in America. We want to be in America, raise our kids. And this is the place that your, your family is going to have opportunity. Yeah. Right? And so they just applied for immigration and immigrated. And the job he could get, to your point of comparative literature not being marketable, was taking advantage of his excellent language skills and his writing skills. Radio journalism at the Voice of America. Who needs Arabic speakers? Seriously? Washington, D.C. Yes, Washington, D.C. Voice of America. We lived in the D.C. suburbs. Grew up inside the Beltway. Oh, so you have very little... You didn't actually grow up in upstate New York. You were there for a couple years. A couple years. Jordan. Jordan for 18 months. Four years old. We land in Northern Virginia. My mom and dad are like, we're Americans now. Now, it took them, I don't know, six or seven years to get their citizenship. Right? And I, so when he, when he applied for, um, I guess, with some sort of work visa... Something like that. And they and he applied for that job, and they said... I believe that's right. I believe wow, that's wow, right. Wow. And, you know, a lot of his family was like, why are you going back to America? What do you mean? Huh? No, you just went for school. You're, you're not staying here in Jordan? You're home? My dad was like, no. And so, I mean, when you came My back the second too. time... Yeah. Did, did I, was, I was four years old. I don't know. But did you go back a lot? Did you have... No, no. Remember, family? it was the 1970s. I mean, a, oh, a long-distance yeah. phone call was something that happened two or three times yeah. a year, and it was yeah. a big deal. It cost a ton of money. cost a ton of money. You'd yell around the house, long distance, long distance. You'd come huddle in the kitchen, and it would last five, seven minutes, right? Um, we visited once when I was 12. Uh, you know, we were solidly middle class, but you didn't just fly across the world like yeah, you do yeah. today. I mean, my yeah. parents have gone back now. I don't know. Oh, now they do. Now oh, they yeah, 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 back and forth, back and yeah. forth. Um, not that frequently. I mean, they're in their late 70s now, but oh, yeah, they go back all the time. So when you went at 12, mm -hmm. I mean, as you said, you had this sort of shadowy memory of being there when you were young. Like, at 12, right. it must have been like totally new to you. Oh, yeah, completely I mean, new to me. My Arabic skills were reasonable um, spoken Arabic at the time because I was speaking it all the time at home. My parents weren't strict about it. And once I left for college, um, my Arabic skills have declined pretty steadily. Yeah. And they're yeah. pretty bad now. I can understand most of spoken Arabic, but not at a highly educated level, because I didn't learn it that way. Like street slang, you're fine, but Essentially, not. or kitchen talk, right? Kitchen talk, yeah. I understand all that stuff, right? Um, but yeah, if, if, if I have to listen to a news report, if I listen to an Arabic news report, I can maybe catch one word in five. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So, but when you go back and, and you're meeting all this extended family for the first time, I mean, what was that, what was that like? I'd never had any family around me except my immediate family. It was kind of interesting. It was kind of nice. Nice people. It was just a little bit odd. and It was fun. You know, your parents were like, this is your cousin. This is my your cousin. This is your cousin. This is your cousin. This is your other cousin. This is your grandpa. I met my grandma and grandpa after me when I wasn't two. I met them that one time. And my father's side, he was on the younger side of a very big family. His yeah. father had passed away before I was born. I met his mom when I was two. I met her again when I was 12, very briefly. A very elderly woman at that point in time. And that was the last time, that's all I, ever, all I ever saw of them. So I only really met my grandparents a couple times. Yeah, you know, I, this is something that uh, I don't hear talked about a lot, but um, when people immigrate like that, they often do not have grandparents. No, so I didn't have grandparents. grandparents. Yeah. Yeah. Grew up without grandparents, yep. So I don't really understand the experience uh, one way or the other. On the other hand, like I've had a, a modest amount of contact with some of my adult cousins who have jobs that take them all around the world, and um, they're, they were extraordinarily close to my grandma and grandpa. Talk about them all the time. Yeah. So it's you missed, you missed that experience. a little bit. Yeah. I, I didn't have that experience at all. Yeah. I didn't have that experience at all. Do you have kids? I do, three. So they have grandparents? They have grandparents. Yeah, two, so two sets. There you go. Yeah. And they, you know, East Coast, West Coast, we're on the West Coast, the grandparents are on the East Coast, but, oh yeah, they see them a couple times a year, usual. Okay, so this, this is starting to make a little more sense to me. Um, so you're growing up now in D.C. That's basically most of your suburbs, childhood. Suburbs. Suburbs. suburbs, suburbs. Yep. Northern, Northern Virginia. Suburbs, Northern Virginia. And your dad, at least, is... Uh, he's has a grad degree, so you know what grad school is, et cetera, oh, yes. but he's not a scientist. Nope, not at all. And so how did you get interested in, in science? I just started being interested in, in hearing about scientific stuff at a young age. My first memories are hearing about the Apollo missions when I was like five years old, four years old. I still remember watching the Apollo Soyuz docking on the black and white TV uh -huh. um, and just thinking, oh, astronomy's really cool. Astronauts are cool. I like science. Uh, I was always you know, um, um, quick with numbers and reading and stuff like that. So it seemed like a, 
this is sort of a general direction I would go. I never really thought about it too hard. I always just sort of assumed I'd do something technical. There was never any doubt or, frankly, consideration. It just sort of evolved. The specific field involved some consideration, but yeah, I was always going to be some kind of scientist or engineer. So honestly, at one point you're like, maybe an astronaut, because that does seem cool. And Honestly, I think I was more into the, uh, the astronomy than the astronauts. Just the idea of... Look, yeah, stars are cool, planets, studying science, yeah, other yeah. planets. And, you know, there was also an element of, you know, if you're five or six years old, you're pretty good at reading. You know, the, like my dad used to have a parlor trick. He'd make me do, you know, math addition problems. And I'd, I'd do fun. Just because friends. <laughs> right? Like um, bring Basil out here and have him do the Yeah, oh, math. do this thing. Yeah, do this, that. Yeah, add these three numbers together or whatever. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it becomes a part of how you relate to the world and your identity of, oh, you're the smart kid. You're the math kid. Or the reading kid or the yeah. science kid yeah. or whatever. And it's funny, I was never really awesome at math. Like I've met some people in my various education time who were amazing at math. I'm okay at math. <laughs> I'm but, not a mathematician. Yeah. And so at that point though, you kind of think you are amazing at math because your parents are having you do these tricks I, and you're like, I'm oh. realizing that um, I'm good at school and I'm realizing that that is something that gets me a lot of reward yeah. and attention. Yeah. And I also realized pretty quickly, it's pretty much my identity. Even more than that, it becomes how people see me. Right? As uh, a student, a, a smart A science person, kid, a science smart kid, kid yeah. right? And that was sort of, that's really, essentially, it was my identity growing up. What, what about your sister? Sister, older sister is, um, uh, she was not at all. She was always a good student, conscientious, worked hard, um, but didn't have that kind of science bent at all. Yeah. Uh, she works in communications now. Yeah. Okay. Right. All right. So then you're, you're growing up. And I have up. a younger brother. He, he was oh, born wow. after we left Jordan, right when we got to America. So, so all, all the kids are born, born in, in America. the U.S. Right. with this 18 months or so in Jordan in between. Correct. Okay. Correct. He's five years younger than me. And then, so your mother, do, do you, uh, if your dad had this sort of um, uh, affinity for language, maybe I'm going to say, did your mother have some sort of affinity for science? That No, not really. And so you don't not know where really. it came so, from. And again, her educational opportunities were somewhat constrained in the 1950s in yeah. Jordan. Just yeah. in the 1950s in Jordan, educational opportunities were constrained, and she's a woman. Yeah. Um, you know, she always had liked science, she said, when she took it in school, but no, she took care of us, and then when I was 12, so about, you know, seven, eight years, and when my youngest brother was like eight or nine, so at that, in the, that era, old enough to take care of himself after school, right, right. right. Um, she went back to work. She went to work and she was an Arabic teacher, right? Uh -huh. My parents lived off of their that skill. immigration skill, yeah. right? As, as immigrants. He was an Arabic teacher at the Foreign Service Institute at the State Department because we're in D.C. It's a right? government, it's a company town, right? Yeah. yeah. And so she taught diplomats and soldier, military people until, oh, I don't know, she retired about five or six years ago, 30 oh, wow. odd years, yeah. Uh, so, but so when you look at what your life has become, as far as like being in the biotech world, you can't yeah. really pinpoint to either parent. No, you not at you all. Know, some mix that. Sort the of only thing out. I can say was there was a a very consistent, strong from a very young age. Education is important. I I remember hearing when I was six, you got to work hard at school so you can get a scholarship. I didn't even know what the word meant, because of course for my dad, right, he was born in 1940 in a tiny village in the southern part of Jordan and lived the same life as his you know, ancestors had for hundreds of years. It was, it was farming. You farmed and that's what you ate. Yep. And that was it. And there was a school and he was one of the first kids where the school went to like I think eighth grade or something. Right? Otherwise it was just you know, farm kids in a third world country in a British protectorate. Um, and he was smart enough. He got to go to the town to go to the high school. I think he had, he has four brothers, three, four sisters. Uh, None of them got to go. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, you know, look, he said, and if you didn't go to the school, well, it was like, there's two people. I mean, what do you mean? He's like, well, if you could read, they slapped, they slapped stripes on your shoulders, said, you're an officer, you're in the army now, you're going to be an important guy. Wow. If you, you couldn't read, well, you, you know, you drive a truck or something. If you couldn't read, were you, you were just like a foot soldier in the army? Or, or just you were going to stay a farmer else. or whatever. Okay. But if you could read, you had opportunity. Yep. Right? So that now, did and, literally lifted, lifted him out. I mean, the education completely was completely lifted him the out. way out for him. Lifted him out. And he said, I was always, he was always very driven. He understood. He was a smart kid. Yeah. And he worked hard. And he, he was like, he knew, oh, I get to go to the town. You guys are staying here. Oh, oh, I get to go to Baghdad to college. How many people do I know going to college? Nobody. Right? So he got it. So... That was drilled into me that you got to get a scholarship, got to get a scholarship. I didn't even know what it meant, right? Of course, the circumstances growing up in the 1970s and 80s in America, was like I, right. I was going to go to college whether I had a scholarship or not. You, yeah. 
Right. No, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he's got this. He's got this idea that I think. So just tell me if this sounds accurate to you. He he at some point understood that he was smart. Yeah. And that placed a certain amount of responsibility on his shoulders. Like you can't waste this. No. If it's going to help me, they're not going to go anyplace. I can go to Baghdad. He felt that, and he's like, mm-hmm. now I'm going to have to study because I know that I am maybe I got somehow a different chance. I got an opportunity. I have a chance. Exactly. I have an opportunity. Right. Exactly. And he's like, you got to take this. You're you're smart. You know, I expect this of you. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And so it was always like, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. And it was interesting though because you know I went to a great public school system in Northern Virginia. Fairfax County Public Schools are still excellent. Um, it, it wasn't overly taxing. Right for you? No, it yeah. really wasn't. It really wasn't, and it was good schools. Um, so it wasn't like that insistence on education resulted in some incredibly stressful growing up environment. It was just sort of here's an expectation: don't screw it up, kid. And and you were not screwing it up without having to you know stay up all night stuff. No, yeah, not okay. at all. Not, now I will say I was a pretty mouthy kid. So my. And my, what, what, is that, what does that mean? You know, like uh, the teachers were like, oh, he's always got something smart to say, something clever he wants to share with all of us. Why don't you tell us all, Basil? You know, I remember in third grade even being a little bit, perf- a little bit of a performer. Like the class like, clown? Not thing? a clown, though. No. Not like I'm doing pratfalls. But no, not I'm... a clown. Just I'm going to say something okay. and I'm going to be funny or I'm going to be smart or, you know, certainly. And also during my adolescence, I had uh, definitely an annoying streak, right? And I was just quick enough on my feet not to get beat up about it. I was going to ask if you're no. being mouthy all the time. I, I was, I was, I was, I had a bit of a self-protective instinct as well. Yeah, you knew when like, to. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't want to get my my head pounded. Right. I'm only five foot six. Yeah. I wasn't exactly a big guy. <laughs> and um, and also, I, I skipped eighth grade. Um, my dad said, "Well, you know, you're not being challenged in seventh grade. This is good. You should you should skip eighth grade." I was like, "Um, no." Oh, so you went right to high school. Seventh to high school. So I was twelve when I started high school. Oh my god! And let me tell you. Now they that, looked so big. Exactly. I remember this vividly. I was like, oh my God, they're enormous. You were 12 though? That means... 12, like, because my birthday was in October so and, were... and the grade cut off the flip over was December. So for the first two months of high school, I was 12 and I was 13. So oh I was only God. a year younger. I cannot imagine being 12 <laughs> in high school. Yeah. I, so you were, you were 12 and, and like 5'4"? I have no idea. No, you no, were no, no, shorter no. than I was that. like 5'1". Oh tw- yeah, I grew up to my, my, my high stature of almost 5'6", by I think probably 10th grade, 11th oh. grade. I had, and, and also you didn't have any... Uh, it, the friends you'd made were behind you. They now. were behind me. They were gone. So was that, that, was that difficult? That had to be. It was a little bit difficult in that I just didn't know anybody and yeah. I didn't have much in common with them. And so... Uh, you know, I always read a lot and I liked books and I was always into sports, baseball yeah. when I was a little, then running when I realized, well, baseball's for big people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll, stop, I'll stop doing baseball. Um, so I, I, it wasn't like it was some kind of traumatic loneliness, but I just didn't have many friends freshman year. I had people that I interact with in class and, you know, joke around with. I didn't feel alone in, in school. Yeah. Um, though it was a giant high school, it was like 2,000 people, giant public high school, you know, one of these men, football was a big deal. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. But these kids are getting in their car and driving home and stuff, and you're 12, you're 12 years old and then 13 years old. Then 13 years old, so, yeah, yeah, that's that's a huge... Now, again, the freshmen were only a little bit ahead of me. Yeah. Again, notably physically more developed. Yeah. Um, you know, but the school part of it was not hard, right? And very quickly, people suss out where you fall in that sort of category of how does he do at school. They're like, oh. He's doing well. He's doing really well at school. Okay. Well, and then, you know, again, because I... I feel comfortable talking. I'm pretty extroverted. I think that's a big protective mechanism. You don't, you know, it, 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 you don't get like all stereotypically the nerd kid who's all alone and lonely. I really wasn't. Now I'd go home and it was just, you know, do a little homework, watch a little TV, read a book or something, go to practice when it's season, go to bed, get up, go to school. Practice right. running. Back then it was run, uh, baseball. Oh, so, baseball, oh, baseball until tenth grade, tenth grade. Okay. So until tenth grade, you played sports too. Yeah, 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 yeah. And boy. I went from like in, in, you know, elementary school and seventh grade. I was, I was pretty good, you know? Suddenly I was like, I'm really not good <laughs> at all. <laughs> so you, then you, you just gave it up. Well, I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. This, this is not going anywhere. Yeah. You're, not gonna, just... you're not gonna make and it. And also, you know, it's a big high school. Yeah. Some of these kids were good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, it was just fine. It wasn't, again, it wasn't overly traumatic. Right, okay, so then, all right, so you're. you're... And I was definitely knew I was gonna be a scientist. Y- yeah, okay. No question in my mind. Not sure what kind, but you were. Not sure what science. kind. Were you excelling at physics or biology or? or they no? were all fine. Were I mean, fine. again, there was not like, this wasn't an enrichment high school, right? We had AP courses and stuff, but it wasn't some kind of science magnet. It was just high yeah. school. Yeah. 
Um, and you know, I took the, the sort of honors classes and whatnot, so the kids around me were pretty smart. Um, I, I kind of got interested, I remember, in the concept, the idea, because I was hearing about it in the news of genetic engineering. Yeah. I think right around then, Genentech was just getting out insulin and, and, and growth hormone yeah. and stuff like that. And this is stuff I'm aware of now in retrospect. At the time, it was just news stories about stuff. And interferons are going to cure cancer. And I remember, I remember hearing these. I was like, wow, genetic engineering, that sounds really cool. You know, it's science, it's bio. Maybe I should do that. And my parents were always like, be a doctor. You know, the, the yeah, classic typical, immigrant stereotype. Right. I mean, right. I don't know how many Arab immigrant kids, the ones that got good grades, they're all doctors now. It's I mean, crazy. It, yes, but all, almost all immigrants, it's like be a doctor or sometimes be a lawyer, but it's sometimes doctor, a lawyer. Doctor, be a doctor yeah. or a lawyer. Be a doctor right. or a lawyer. But once you earn a good salary, yeah. Yeah. you got to earn money because there's always the immigrant fear of like you're going to be destitute in the yeah. street. Yeah. Right. So, so then as you're, as you're approaching the end of high school, um, are you looking at specific schools for science or, or how did you, you know it's you interesting Johns Hopkins um, one right? of the things that happened to me was I got involved in seventh grade seventh grade yeah they they have this um uh, uh like honors class gifted and talented kid talent search things Hopkins did and I remember they said at the program in the school oh all you kids who like scored above a certain amount of there was some standardized test we would all take every year uh-huh. I can't remember what it was called the SRA or something the usual reading and math and they percentile rank you and it's a metric for the school and for the kid and I would also score very high on this. Oh, any kid who scored above this is also going to has the option to take the SAT on a weekend before 13 for free. It's part of this Center for Talented Youth thing that Hopkins did. And if you score high enough, you get to go to these camps, right? And I scored very well. Um, I remember I was top verbal scorer in the state of Virginia, one of the top they had in the country that year. My math score wasn't so stellar. It was okay. Yeah. And I had the top. I tied for the top combined score with this other kid. And so I, st- I started going to these, these camps every summer for like three weeks. It was fun. You know, you take a class in math, and if you worked really hard, you could place out of like the first level of high school math, like geometry or algebra one. Right. I didn't work that hard at these camps. Right. Right. I learned stuff. I hung around with other cool kids, did fun stuff for three weeks, and then went home. I, I wasn't nearly as maybe driven as my dad yeah. back then. Yeah. Um, but that, I was aware of Johns Hopkins, right? And, oh, okay. um, you know, I visited the campus. And I also, oh, it's the best medical school in the world. And there's arguments about whether it is now or not. And I'm not really particularly vested in that argument. But it also was the first place that had biomedical engineering. And I always knew I wanted to do science that was a little mathematical. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Those words sound really cool together. Biomedical engineering. Hopkins invented it. It's the best place. And I said, maybe that's what I want to do. That would be cool. And then I also saw... Hopkins offered an academic scholarship if you qualified for it. I think it was like 60% of your tuition. That's oh. it. But still, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, yeah. Yeah, I mean, back then, of course, tuition was like $7,000. Right. But still, it was a lot right. of money. You know, right. we weren't rich. And I was like, it's got all the pieces I need. Scholarship, this, okay. Right? So then, is that the only place you applied? No, no, no. I applied to University of Virginia, which is a very, very Great good school, school in yeah. our state school. Yeah. Um, I applied to Wash U in St. Louis. They had an engineering program with a scholarship. Yeah. And I think I applied to MIT and Harvard. Didn't get into those places. Got into Wash U, they offered me the scholarship, got into Hopkins, I'm like, I'm going to Hopkins. Right, okay. So then you get your, you get an undergraduate in biomedical engineering. Yes. And you, I think you stayed. Stayed for a master's because I finished in three years because they let you take any AP credits you bring in. And I got to, I qualified out of all of my, uh, well, first I qualified out of like the first year of calculus. So you, you but half the kids in engineering did that, did right? That too. So right. you don't waste a year taking Calc 1, Calc 2. Um, and I qualified out of intro chem. Right, that was great. But the most important thing was I qualified out of all, I qualified out of 15 out of 18. So five out of the six humanities courses I had to take as part of my core curriculum. So that way I could focus all my, my, my course time on science and engineering courses. And oh, I was so you had, to take two, you had to take two humanities courses. One. That's one. Okay. So the rest of it was all science. Yes. Wow. Which all is right. what I wanted to do. Yeah. Right. I mean, for me, college was not about exploring. It was about kind of vocational training in a sense. I was finally doing what I wanted to do and I finally started for the first time in my life working hard in school like I'd never really worked hard in school right but I really started working hard in school I was really excited by learning organic chemistry and physics and vector calc in in freshman year and it was really a passion of mine and one of the things Hopkins did then that almost no place did then but everybody does now is undergrad research it was a big deal they encouraged it it was open yeah I met my advisor, um, the, my, the academic advisor they assigned me. It was a, a very new professor. He just started there, uh, Cam Leung, in Department of Biomedical Engineering. And I was interested in chemistry and math. Don't ask me why. I just was. I was 16. Uh-huh. I, I like chemistry. Chemistry is my thing. I like chemistry. You know, everybody else was like, I want to be an elect, like 
40% of them were electrical engineering types in biomedical engineering. They went on to make, you know, pacemakers and MRIs yeah. and, and fancy EKGs and stuff like that. Another 20, 30% were mechanical engineers. And then a few chemical engineering types, though. And those ratios have apparently shifted a lot in the last 25 years, 30 years. Well, in which direction? Towards the chemical engineering? Less electrical towards chemical. And yeah. even now they call it biological or immune engineering, yeah. which weirdly is what Zencore does. Right? That makes sense, though. Right? right? That whole field The world shifted. Yeah. I was like, I kind of want to do a chemistry focus. There is no chemistry focus. But BME and Hopkins in general is a very kind of entrepreneurial place. So like, but, you know, if you could fill the requirements, you figure it out. And my advisor was like, yeah, sure. He did chemical synthesis of new biopolymers for drug delivery. In fact, he was the postdoc at Bob Langer's lab who actually made the Gliadel wafer. Uh-huh. Okay. Right? Yeah. So he was the first postdoc for Bob Langer that he came to Hopkins to be a faculty. He was pretty much, he was brand new because we didn't have, we had like a, he had an office in, in an old engineering building and a tiny little lab they'd given him in the, in the, in the first floor of that building. And they were, they were building out the lab he was going to get, right? Uh, right there, right next door on the undergrad campus. Interesting fact, every other faculty member in Hopkins BME was at the medical campus three miles away at the medical school. So he's by himself? Yeah. Huh. And that was interesting. And he was just starting out. And he didn't have any grads. He had one master's student and a couple of undergrads. And he's like, you know, after my freshman, first semester freshman year, I got good grades. I said, I'm really interested in getting involved in research. He's like, okay, you know, what are you curious about? Chemistry. He's like, he's like, yeah, you can work with me. We can do synthetic polymers. Here, you know, why don't you copy this paper and this other paper and then read them and we'll talk about them and I'll see if, you know, it makes sense for you to join my lab. And I being the very, you know, uh, scrupulously frugal person, um, copied all the pages and been like, you know, this last page is just a bunch of like footnotes and references. I, I don't need those. I'll just, just do it. So <laughs> the most important it. thing yeah. of a scientific paper, yeah. I didn't have the brains to know was important at that point because nobody told me. Right, exactly. Nobody yeah. told me. And so I read them and it was really interesting. And I, I, at the end of the second semester, I started working in his lab at the end of my freshman year at Hopkins. And I stayed the whole summer and worked. And uh, he paid me a little bit, not much. And um, I stayed in that lab through my undergrad, and I finished in three years, but I wanted to stay and continue the work I was doing. And part of the reason I pulled my graduation in earlier was I was eligible. F if you graduated, there was a graduate scholarship, the, the DOD scholarship program, which is still extant today. Uh -huh. A lot of people get it. I could, and they would give you a, a stipend, money they would pay you, and tuition. Now, my parents were paying my tuition and sending me a little money so I could you know, eat, whatever. eat and yeah. live in a row house with my, you know, my buddies. Yeah. Um, and it was, but I could, I could be independent financially. I could actually have more money, right? Actually, you know, maybe save some or buy better food, stuff yeah, exactly. like that. And so I was like, but I got to graduate to do this. And Hopkins BME was like, well, you got plenty of credits, except there's this one category of credit you need called design credits that certain courses have, and you don't have enough of those. Like, but you know, I've basically been working in this lab full time almost for all these years. And they were like, well, I don't know. Apparently they had a back discussion that the undergrad head, who's now an emeritus professor there and my advisor, Dr. Leung, and they were like, yeah, come on, we're not going to let this kid graduate, come on. He's got really good grades, he works really good, just let him graduate and stay in the lab, fine. They were really cool about it. So that allowed you to roll it right into a master's program and have right. and get a stipend on top of it? Yes. And you were, you were like 19 then? I was 19 when I graduated, yeah. From, from undergrad? From undergrad. Okay, so from then, undergrad. so the master's was two years. two years? Two years, two years, two years. Now, some courses, and it was just the same research I was doing, and the other neat ad was... Um, it let me keep running track and cross country at Hopkins. Cause oh, you I, did that? I, yeah, because I had four years of eligibility. They didn't care. I even went to the athletic director. They're like, it was division three. It wasn't like we were well, world still, beaters. Still. And that was a big thing in my undergrad was the, the regular steadiness of going to track and cross country practice every day, you know, 4.30, take a little break. Bounce, bounce those two things out, right? And then on weekends when you had meets, I didn't study until the meet was over. Mm -hmm. It's like some people tried to take books on the van. I'm like, it never works. Yeah. You yeah. can't. So that, huh. was, that was a help. That was a help. It was tough juggling that and lab. And honestly, my productivity in lab would ebb and flow based on all sorts of things. So I wasn't 100% productive nearly as much as I would have liked to have been. Um, but one of the things that was salient in Dr. Leung's lab is there was nobody senior or older. He started getting some grad students and postdocs after a while, but they had less experience than me after a couple of years. So and he was very busy writing grants, and he was very hands-off. He'd say, hey, why don't you go try to do this? Yeah. I mean, there was nobody telling you what to do. So this is like you're just sort of whatever experiments you want to do, you're doing. 
kind of along a direction but nobody was telling you how to do it yeah and i remember teaching people like oh you know you got to calculate the molar equivalents for this kind of polymerization reaction differently than you'd think because of this and this and this and it was just like you're making it up on the fly now there was a lot of lost productivity of just stuff i didn't know how to do like chemical reactions that if somebody had been there to say oh actually you just look this up and do this oh my god i wasted six months and got nowhere i mean i can see that but but do you, is there something to be gained by the fact that you were just sort of exploring on your own? I mean, that is how... You're not afraid to just try experiment yeah. and yeah. spend a lot of time running around trying to figure out who to copy, which basically has been the story of my biotech career. People always ask, have you had a mentor? Not in the sense of somebody I go to and I kick things around with, but in the sense of people that I've observed who are really good at what they do, who I can see how they do it and try to figure out patterns and they're kind enough to answer questions of mine... I've had loads of those. Oh, yeah. You just got a copy. Yeah. Um, but Dr. Leung didn't. But how did you, so did he, were you, I mean, you went to get a PhD after this. Did he suggest it or were you thinking, okay, Oh, no, now. I always knew I was going to go to grad school. It was interesting. One of the things that emerged really quickly as an undergrad at Hopkins during my freshman year, I think, I mean, I'm trying to reconstruct the timing a little bit, was, yeah, I don't want to go to medical school. I never really had thought about going to medical school, but at Hopkins undergrad, freshman year, like, 35 or 40% of the class is pre-med. Yeah. By the time it's time to apply to med school, they've whittled that down to 10%. It's pretty ruthless there. And it's got a pretty ruthless academic undergraduate culture. Um, less so in the engineers, by the way. Um, and I had a great experience, but a lot of people, the culture was almost one of let's complain about our lot, Yeah. right? Um, and so a lot of that's the pre-med struggling through introchem or organic chemistry and whatnot. And... Um, I just was like, yeah, it doesn't appeal to me. And, and experiencing the dynamic of the pre-med culture at Hopkins, I was like, I don't want to hang out with these people. Yeah. Uh, so I'm even less interested in that than yeah. I was, which I was never interested. The ironic thing was, as a biomedical engineer, I took courses with lots of pre-meds. And a lot of the BMEs were pre-meds. Over half, I would bet, back then. I think there were 40 or 45 of us graduating back then. Now it's, I think, the biggest major on campus, over oh. 100. Oh, wow. Um, it got, it's gotten much more competitive. You have to apply specifically to get in now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But so how did you, how did you know that, um, well, I guess, I don't know if you applied places beyond Caltech or not. Did you, no. was there a program? No, I applied like, one other place. Like I applied to University of Washington, which had a good biomedical engineering department, but I really wanted to do a little bit more molecular engineering and chemistry because that was sort of what we did in, in Dr. Leung's lab, which was engineering of polymers and trying to attach things to them for delivery systems. Or That was the very early days of trying to make tissue scaffolds. Uh-huh. Um, um, and so I knew I wanted to get more molecular and chemical. And Caltech, one, it was on the West Coast. There was a glamour to it. Uh, wow, it's warm all the time. That yeah. sounds really cool and exciting. Yeah. And I'd gone to LA for a conference an AICHE conference in 91, I believe. And I set up my own little tour of Caltech. I just contacted the chemistry department. I want to be a chemist. I, you know, I want to apply maybe. Can I get a tour? They're like, well, you're off season, but sure. 
because Caltech is very small yeah. and family-like. And I had a little student tour. I'm like, oh, this place is awesome. I want to go here, right? And so I applied there. And again, I think I'm pretty sure you dub, and which weirdly my oldest daughter attends now as an oh, undergraduate. Really? Total coincidence. Huh? And uh, but that was it. I was like, I want to go to Caltech. Okay, so then that's you. I mean, other than that tour, you hadn't really spent any time on the West Coast. This is a nope. big, big change. I mean, you're young. I was 21 when I arrived. God, you're so young for all this, yeah. Yeah. It's not so a seismic change, but it's a little bit of a change. It's a change. It's a change yeah. for sure. For sure. I mean, it was it was warm all the time, yeah. I and mean, it was um, even more independence than I had as an undergrad. I mean, it was pretty independent as an undergrad. Yeah. Right. Doctor Leung did not tell you what to do at all, um, and then that was a really good, really good, I think way to learn how to think about can I even start trying to do something that helped me in biotech it's like well I better try figure it out so you, you were still thinking about um, just being a researcher yeah yeah being a scientist of so, some kind and I hadn't really thought too much about industry or academia at that point um, I did I was aware there was a biotech industry because again the whole start was like wow Genentech does genetic engineering yeah. isn't that really neat and so jumped off into uh into chemistry research. Does your XMAP technology come out of your PhD? Mm, not really. Not really. Just protein engineering was what my PhD is, was about. And we do protein engineering. So yeah. in that rough sense, yes. But not really. The technology we worked on for my PhD, which was what we found in Zencoron, was really algorithms for designing proteins in a computer that we also went the step of, but we're not just going to do it computationally. We're going to actually prove these work by making them in the lab, oh, wow. checking their structures. It was a joint computational experimental approach. And I was the uh, one of the first two students for also another new faculty member who just arrived at Caltech that I decided I wanted to work with, uh, Steve Mayo, who, who helped co-found the company, who's uh -huh. now um, I don't know, executive officer running the biology division at Caltech. He's still, he's still there. Right. So the, I read someplace like you sort of started this company, um, you were going to use these algorithms, and you didn't really know... I mean, obviously, you couldn't have known really what the industry was or what pharma would need or anything like that. By the way, the industry barely knew what it was in 1997. Exactly, yeah. It was so such a nascent, nascent industry. So you started the company in, in like the Caltech lab? Yeah, I was, I was wrapping up my PhD, and we said, we're going to start a company. Okay, great. I got Who's finished. we? You, you Me and Steve Mayo, okay. the professor. And he had helped start a software company that, that sold software packages that did computational chemistry modeling back in the late 80s when he was a grad student and was involved with that company up through the mid-90s, um, right before we started. And so his idea in his mind was almost a software model. We're not necessarily going to sell the software to people. We're going to use it, and we're going to sell the protein sequences we designed. And we thought this was a great idea. We said, well, you know, the value in Amgen is that they own the patents for these protein sequences that they sell, these drugs, epigen and nupigen. Yeah. We'll make better ones and we'll sell those to people and the money will pour out of the sky. <laughs> yeah, that was not the best thought out right. business plan. And I remember when I was thinking about starting, it's like, I guess we've got to come up with a budget, right? And so Steve's, he was a pretty hands-off guy. He was busy getting tenure. And he's like, yeah, okay, sure. So I remember sitting down at the Mac in the lab with Excel, coming up with a budget. And the whole budget, I think the whole detail of it was like, I don't know, seven or eight lines in oh my spreadsheet. God. For your, like your next year? <laughs> yeah, oh exactly. God. I mean, think how comical that is. Yeah. Now, the industry was less sophisticated then. Yeah. But even for that era, that was exceptionally naive. naive and unsophisticated. Now, the Caltech aura helped, right? That was even before places like MIT, Harvard, and Stanford had become established as the places that found companies. It was yeah. pretty early days. And Caltech luckily had a very forward-looking person they just brought into the tech transfer office named Larry Gilbert. Um, Caltech had sort of missed out on the DNA sequencing bonanza uh -huh. that had been invented literally at Caltech and applied biosystems, which, you know, DNA sequence is done with the chemical sequencing of that, not the optical techniques. Uh -huh. uh, and, uh, you know, they missed out on that. Like, we made a mistake. And right when we were starting the company, well, we needed to license this intellectual property so we could have it in the company and then go raise money around it. Larry was like, yep, yeah, we're here to help. Come up with $2,000. We'll give you an exclusive option for a year while you go out and raise money. This is how you do it. And we'll take equity in that company and a little royalty. Sign me up. What was the, I'm just curious, like what equity chunk did they take back then? Oh, small. It was 5% um, uh, or something. Uh, yeah, it was in the single digit percent range. And the royalty rate was in the low single digits. Oh, okay. Right. So I start talking to professors who've been involved with companies. I remember Peter Durvin, who had been involved in helping start, either helping start or was on the scientific advisor board of Gilead when it was a nucleic acid company, yeah. before it turned into the phenomenal success that it is today. 
And he'd had some experience in a professor named John Balderspieler who'd founded a liposomal drug delivery company that actually has some products that are still around today. Talk to him about this. Explain to me, well, this is what a venture capitalist is. This is what an investor does. They take equity shares in your company and they might give you $5 million. And then if, in a few years, if your science works, a big company might buy your company for $100 million. And their $5 million bought them a quarter of that company. And I said, and then they make $25 bucks. I was like, I get it. I, I now see how they make money. Perfect, excellent. Thanks for the explanation. Uh, um, I'm good. That's all I need, right? That's all I needed. And he's like, well, let me introduce you to a VC that I know. And we introduce, I have a meeting, and uh, they sort of took me seriously. Do you know who it was? Yes. I don't know if they're still around. It was CHL, Carlton Howe and Lennox. No, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, 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 you don't know. You know. They were in Connecticut, I think. And then a friend of mine had just started a company. Uh, he'd been a postdoc uh, that did DNA diagnostics. Two years before he'd started a company, he got funded actually by a family in Chicago that had stumbled across him in a Scientific American article describing their technology and that they were starting a company. And he was grinding away trying to start this company with no money for like two years. I remember him running around the lab, you know, because we sh- I went to a lab that shared some equipment and telling me about what he's doing, and now we're talking to this, we're talking to that. He raised some money from his family and from friends, you know, the usual friends and family round. Yeah. And then these people from Chicago came and they gave him like $10 million. Oh, wow, that much. A lot. It was, I don't remember oh what it was. God. It was a lot. It was a lot. And uh, he, he had a real company, and there was a building and people and a lab, and I was like, wow, I got to do this. He's like, you know, you should meet my investors. They're coming to town in a few weeks. And he said that to me when I happened to run into him, because he'd now off campus at an event held at Caltech on entrepreneurship, and it was like a local entrepreneur thing where, I don't know, 10 people came and met and had lunch at the uh, faculty club. Yeah. And that chance meeting, he's like, yeah, you should, they're coming into town, you should present to them. And I did, and we hit it off. You had a deck and everything, you ready to go? I made one up. Oh, okay. Yeah. You had your spreadsheet, and said, this is my, my rebel deck, my, my science deck. And it was just really my thesis talk, or the talk that Steve gave when he went for his uh, tenure talks, Yeah. right? Which is, again, absurd now in retrospect yeah. what you can get what you'd have to to do now to get a company started and so I met with them and they seeded the company we we structured a deal we get a million and a million and a half bucks now but up to five million based on progression of milestones and you can buy the big computer you're going to use to run your software that you've licensed from Caltech and design these sequences and it's going to be you and a couple of other computer type guys sitting in an office and we're going to sell this and it's going to be a dry company no wet lab well, yep, that's the model. Okay, yeah. And that fell apart in six months because nobody wanted to pay us. So we contacted the people that were interested in Protein Therapeutics then, which was a very short list at the time. Some people at Amgen. Yeah. And it was, I'd interviewed for a job there while a headhunter called me about a job there yeah. in the formulations group. And I'd interviewed with the formulations head. And I got a job offer and I turned it down. I was like, you know, I think I'm going to try to start this company. Oh, that's great, cool. So I called them again. Hey, you want to hear about my company? It's, we're making proteins better and more stable. Just what you need. Oh, sure, come on over had a meeting and I come out of it saying, that's really not gonna go anywhere, okay? Our Genentech friends, right, who loved our paper, we talked to all the time, I don't think that's gonna go anywhere either. Nova Nordisk, right, that's not gonna go anywhere. Lily, that's not gonna go anywhere. Those are the only people at the time that cared about proteins. And, and the reason being is they didn't want to make the, they wanted you to make the protein. Yeah, they wanted an actual interesting candidate where yeah. they could see that it did something, not a yeah. sequence that predicted it might. Yeah, 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 okay. And it was a, okay, wow. <sighs> So this now? is this is a bit. I mean, you, you hear about companies pivoting all the time, but this is you're, you're barely on the ground and you already have. Oh yeah, pivot, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, exactly. Okay, we got to find a lab. There were no incubators then. There were no anything like that. Running around Pasadena trying to find a lab. Found some benches with some sinks, and a little place we could jam a a, a, a hood for you know laminar flow hood. Um, a few miles away in East Pasadena, it was an electrical supply company had a side building that a, a, an obscure company that was trying to make freeze-dried blood on a Defense Department contract a few years before had put some benches in and stuff, and it was they were gone, and so we rented it, right? I still remember the smell of, of the place. musty carpet, right? And it would flood a bit when it rained. It was fine, whatever, it was fine. And we put our computer in there, and I, I found a lab person to hire, <laughs> a molecular biologist who actually knew how to clone and express proteins. He'd been a postdoc at Berkeley. And you know, I started hiring you know, postdoc-type people to do computational, and a few lab people. We had our first lab tech. So we got about 10 people, a dozen people, and I'm like, oh, we got to do something that's pharmaceutically relevant. And we got to find a deal, get a deal. And so we started talking to all the industrial enzyme companies that existed then, like Genencore and, and, and uh, who was their big competition? Novozymes yeah. and all that, and, and ag, ag trait companies. 
because there was a big thing called life sciences convergence then. There are going to be companies that were pharmaceuticals and ag and industrial you know, uh, enzymes, enzymes and yeah. industrial biotech, and it was all going to synergize around technology clusters, and it was going to be fantastic. This was the wave of the future. That lasted about two years. Uh, one thing we learned, I learned a lot about then was what's called a profit margin. The industry you're in has an intrinsic profit margin. In biopharmaceuticals, it can be, what, 80%. Uh -huh. They can support grand research ideas that cost a lot of money. In industrial enzymes, it's like not 80%. I was going to say like 15 or something. I have no idea, yeah. honestly, but it's not. And I remember the first term sheet we got to do this project for them computationally and give them sequences and share data with them was for $50,000. I was like, well... That'll pay for the salary of the guy running the computations while he's doing it. Okay, yeah. I guess. Did you take it? You had to take I it. I took it because I could go to my board and say, we got a deal. Yeah, Somebody it, wants exactly. it, guys. Right. Somebody wants it. And then we did some protein designs to engineer um, Nupagen to be more stable. So we thought that'd be great. It's going to be more shelf stable. Maybe you could store room temperature. Maybe you could last longer in the circulation. None of which were particularly compelling things to do with it. Right? Uh, what, did you take that to Amgen? We did. And they said we have no Oh, that's very nice. Very interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. But my board was like, at least you can make something somewhat relevant to yeah. pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And at the time, we were very lucky. The dot-com boom was really taking off. So this is so these invest 99. 99. So the investors all had a lot of money. So all of us, okay, we raised a $12 million round based on, oh, you, oh, built, you, a, you built a lab on $2 million bucks. You built a lab, hired some people, did some experiments, got a deal with Genencore. You're about to get another deal with, I um, can't remember who it was now. So Genencore is the first fifty thousand dollar deal you're talking yep, about. Okay. Yep, exactly, exactly. And uh, you know, it just gave them confidence that there at least was a there there. And also the investor who's still our largest shareholder right now, um, though he's come down a little bit, had a passionate belief that creating new intellectual property was an important thing. These guys can create intellectual property. They're smart, he's a smart guy, and, and we're gonna get this done. We're gonna figure this out. You know, passion project almost. Um, and over the course of the company, prior to us going public, all in, he, he and his family put in $65 million. Oh, my God. Over the course of 16 years, he stuck with it. Now, in that interim, we generated, you know, maybe $100 million in revenue from various deals, and we'd grown, but, but we not, couldn't get public. So did you, this, you, you went public in, in 2000? Late you, 2013. 16 oh, I was years say, so of you, being private. All right. So then all this buzz, I mean, the, the... We missed it. Well, but, we didn't but miss it. it allowed you to raise venture capital money yes, around it. Yes, that wasn't even venture capital money. It was more money from mostly the same investors we'd had. And in 2000, from Chicago, the... in 1990, we raised $12 million. We're like, wow, we're set for years. We can now start doing cool experiments. Maybe we can even put something into the clinic, which it took us another six years to come up with something worth putting into the clinic. But then 2000 came along. There was just a lot of money. He's like, there's a lot of money out there, man. We should maybe do something. You think we just raise money, but when there's money, you take it. Yeah, exactly. Great right. lesson. Right. So we got there to raise another ten million dollars. We came back with fifty. That's your first venture round. No venture. No, that was that was private families again. Private families, their friends, um, a couple of funds in New York that were just like money sloshing around in their pockets, and it was a weird time. How did you raise it? Who who did you? Just who went on the road? How did me? You, you started with the family in Chicago. He introduced you to a bunch of other folks. And their businesses in, in stock trading. Okay. Stock trading firms that have you know dozens of people that have trading strategies and quantitative trading. And there's computers and things like that that trade stocks. I mean, stocks. you couldn't do that today. No. Oh, no. The world is much more sophisticated now. Oh, and also, if you weren't around in the dot-com bubble, it makes this supposed bubble we've had in biotech look like the most Nothing. measured, sedate yeah. kind of investing you've ever seen. Yeah. It was insanity. But so you, so we you, raised the 50 million bucks, and boy, that right led after you're 12. So you're at like 62. That's a long runway for you guys. It was a long runway for us. Now, did we use it as prudently as we should have? No, we didn't. What'd you do? We spent too much. Well, now, what we did was the key things we did do with this, though, we ended up hiring, based on the amount of money we had and the security that offered, people who actually had real biotech and pharmaceutical experience to help manage us. Um, great people, some people out of Exelixis. Oh, yeah. That have gone I, on to wonderful careers. I should ask, were you CEO at this point? Yes. Okay. Yes. That 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 changed for a while. Yeah. You you, you stepped aside. Maybe, is this when? I didn't step aside. I was like, hey, buddy, this isn't working out as well as we can. We're not getting the kind of deals. We're not running it maybe as much like a business as we want. Let's hire a CEO who's a real business deal guy. Deal, deal, deal. It was such an obsession. 
Um, we want other people to put money into this too is the fundamental part of it. And you can focus on the science. I was like, well, okay. who said that was the investors were saying? Yeah, yeah. Okay. There's one investor who really yeah. led it, right? And you're thinking, they're like, we would like you to focus on, you could be CSO or something. Well, and also, we want somebody better than you doing the business yeah. part of it. I mean, it was pretty blunt. I mean, there's yeah. no, no reason to sugarcoat it. And I was like, yeah, you know, you're right. Now, what am I going to do? Yeah. No. Yeah. I, like, disagree. I, I disagree. I disagree. Well, I didn't even. I was just like, okay. I was like, I realized it's time to be political. Okay, let's see who we can find. And it didn't work out with that person. It lasted about 15 months, and they ended up asking him maybe to leave and saying, you're CEO again. Wow. Give it a shot. Did and you want it? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. Because in the meantime, we did get our, our big deal done. It was a big deal for us and a $5 million upfront from Genentech that was a strategic blunder of epic proportions by us. Why? Well, we um, had finally hit upon a really killer app for our protein engineering, which was what we still do today, engineer the FC domains of antibodies. Right. At the time, the drugs that were booming and exploding in growth, two of the biggest ones were rituxan and Herceptin. And it had been deduced that a key part of their mechanism, for rituxan, probably the main part of the mechanism, was driven by that FC domain. And we had just invented what was clearly the best way to improve that, the next generation. And we said, well, God, this is fantastic. And Genentech said, well, let's do it with us. And we were like, well, you're going to offer us how much money? Oh, wow, great. Five now, nine. Five million bucks up front, plus yeah. a bunch of back end, plus yeah. a million bucks a year, which for us was like, wow, yeah. proof that we actually should exist. Because the board was getting a little nervous. The investor was getting a little nervous. And so we took the money, but it was a bad strategic fit. They, of course, wanted to protect their franchise. They already had the leading drug, and they were growing by leaps and bounds. They weren't in a super rush to come up with the next generation, and it just floundered. Ah, okay. Didn't go anywhere. Okay. So and that... we burned the opportunity, because by the time we got it back, five or six years later, it was too late for us to start and chase after it. Big blunder. Okay. Now, it was because we felt poor, we felt uncertain, and investors were, were skittish. Yeah. Not, not unique to new, investors new to biotech. Uh, right? this, is what, this is so interesting to me because it, what, the thing about Zencore is, so you've been around 20 years now. 22. 22 years. And you look like a classic biotech now, right? You have all these deals with Amgen, Novartis, um, Genentech, Astellis, again. Yeah, Genentech. And Revenge is a dish best served cold. The terms were a lot better on that deal. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So the, the genetic deal, we'll get to that. But so this, and and they are typical deals. There's an upfront. There's milestones in revenue. There's um, back end, either back end commercial share, like we own the U.S. rights for this one, or we have a profit split on this one. Yeah. These are kind of these stuff, are right? deals that you would see companies making in you know the early two thousands and things like that. Right. And it, but in the in the meantime, you just ground it out for years. And and, and so much of that was just figuring out what to do, just like when I was in the lab at Hopkins okay, how do I run this kind of chemical reaction to make this kind of polymer? I read a paper. They talked about this kind of glass where I asked Dr. Ling, he kind of said this and this and this, but he's busy. Nobody else in the lab. Start trying. Maybe go ask my organic chemistry professor his opinion about it. And just try. And you kind of muddle along. And sometimes you do figure it out and you, you, you get it to work. Sometimes you just don't. And so I had that long time frame to figure it out. The good thing was this FC technology was so portable, we were able to do a bunch of other deals that didn't give up too much, but that brought in revenue, that brought in certainty, that got attention around us. And then we did do a venture round in 2006. Not the best time to do a venture round because in 2008, early 2009, that whole industry imploded. Yeah. And so what ended up happening was we got saddled with investors that couldn't participate further. Our lead investor, the family office, was still the strongest, largest investor. But once you mix investors that are in a different situation, it's trouble. Uh-huh. And that really made it hard for us so to... So they are both on the board. Oh, they were all on the board at that time. But it made it hard for us to finance. And so, of course, in 2009 and 10, it was really hard to anybody to finance in biotech. And so it really stunted our growth and forced us to license out <clears throat> molecules that are really exciting molecules just to stay alive. Um, and so that, that arrival party of getting legitimate venture money, raising $60 million in 2006 and seven, it was sort of in two tranches, quickly soured. I mean, I feel like this is one of those rare things, and it's not that often that you see this happen to biotechs. You see biotechs um, grow fast, have an amazing platform, some sort of validation, they get bought. Um, you see them flame out. Right. But I, I don't know many that have been around for 15, 20, 22 years where you're just able to stay, stay alive and you keep bringing the money in, keep bringing, and the technology improves and technology right. improves until now you've got, you know, the Genentech deal was a, Nice deal. Yeah, nice deal. It was like 120 up front. 120 up front for 55% of the P&L. We kept 45%. And they structured milestones where we hope that really significantly offsets most of our clinical spend on our share. And we kept the right to do clinical trials of our own in combination with that agent 
for our own pipeline and, and other other compounds as long as we're not directly competing with the collaboration. So it was a good deal. And the possibility that you would own the rights to sell it if you want to do that. Do you want to do that? What? Sell? Sell the drug. Market the drug. Oh, yes. That's right. We might. We don't know. You want the optionality. Huh. Right? And that's what we've built in our pipeline now. Going public in 2013, right when that market opened, and at the time in 2013, it was the first window Really, there'd been some companies that went public, but it was a struggle. The first window where a substantial number of companies went public and traded well and performed well for about four or five years yeah. at least, right? And we didn't know when it was going to end. We assumed it was going to end at the end of 2013. And we barely squeaked out in December. It was a nightmarish IPO because our first pricing attempt just failed. We, we were only able to generate enough orders to cover two-thirds of the, uh, the oh order book God. that we needed. And the investors that came in said, we're not doing a half IPO. We yeah. need this company funded. Yeah. So it took a couple of weeks to round up the cash. We had to cut the price even further, and it was unpleasant, but we got it done. Best thing we ever did. Exactly. It's like unpleasant, a little embarrassing, because people totally. know the, the initial range that you wanted, but you stay alive. You stay alive. You stay alive. You stay alive. And since then, it's it's been an utter rebirth of the company to one that now can have leverage in our partnering negotiations, not just take whatever we can scraps we can get. We can say no. We can put multiple programs into the clinic. We've got a very broad... You've got 11, 11 programs partnered and nine that you're solo, I think. Yeah, how many you got? In the clinic now, there's six, no, sorry, eight programs in the clinic, six that we're pushing actively in our oncology portfolio, two that we're, we're not running trials right now in our autoimmune side. Partners have another, I don't know, six, seven, eight. I always lose track. I don't, want to say the, I don't want to say the wrong, in the clinic, yeah. actively. I don't want to say the wrong number because <laughs> saying the right number is important. Right. Um, but a lot. And one is marketed. It's marketed by our partner, um, uh, Alexion, and that's a classic case of a molecule, a Zencore molecule that we enabled. We didn't build the antibody. In fact, we never touched it. We built the FC domain. That was the key killer app of our technology, was this engineering of the bottom half of the antibody, the constant domain. We weren't the first to do it, and we weren't the only to do it. We feel like we were the most comprehensive and got the most, um, the most uh, usable results, and we built a really nice plug-and-play business out of it. And people had seen it, and they clearly knew they wanted to make a long half-life version of Celeris back in 2012. Yeah. Oh, they did. Oh, oh yeah, man. they did. They did. And they knocked on our door. Can we license rights to this because we think yours is the best? And so there's a beautiful synergy in engineering and discovery we have that lets us create just a plethora of molecules. So we're going to keep feeding things into our pipeline. We're going to keep doing deals when it makes sense when we want to. But the goal is to become a fully integrated company. I mean, there's companies we can model after that had really long sustained runs of technical excellence to make drugs that were able to become part of the ecosystem by partnering, spread their technology around so they had an impact and, and live through to see the other day. Wonderful companies like Cialgenetics and Regeneron and yeah. Alnylam that I model, you know, are thinking around how they use the platform to grow a business. Um, and I have huge respect for how they did that. And those are the people that I'm copying now. Yeah, that's, that's why. Right? That's yeah. how I copy. That, it's yeah. literally the same thing, but it's copying them. Yeah. I want to ask, I want to shift a little bit. So we were on this panel, I don't know, is it a year or two ago? Uh, two, three, something like that. About outspoken CEOs. Yeah. And um, I want to ask you why that's important. Like, why is it important for you as a leader of your company to um, take on social issues? Well, it's funny. I don't really feel particularly outspoken because I feel like I spend 99% of my time head down, talking to my investors, talking to my partners, you know, learning everything I can from my scientists about what the heck we can do. Yeah. But I guess occasionally I poke my head up out of the hole. And I think it's because um, I just have a feeling that if, if, if I'm not going to do it, who's gonna, right? And again, I, I copy people who I see doing it. And I feel, oh, that's how you do it. You know, strong, outspoken leaders, I think, who have put a stake in the ground and said, yeah, I'll take a risk. People like Paul Hastings, who was on that panel with us. Yeah. People like Jeremy Levin, right? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, they have a view and they think it's important for us as, as just people in this industry to present it. And if we happen to have a bit higher of a podium because our job says CEO and we get to talk to certain people, use it. I think that's a great example. And I feel very passionately that immigration is the foundational competitive advantage of our country. And I also see the world as a competition. Yeah. It's like a business. We're competing with the whole world. The world's a lot more competitive than it was when I was a kid. You have entire billions of people now that are, that are now out there 
building countries that can do wonderful, amazing things like China, like India, like Southeast Asia that didn't even hit the radar when I was a kid. We have to do everything we can to maximize our ability to get the best people, right? Some of it's because you can fertilize so much with those, those people coming in. If you're beginning the smartest and the brightest and you're offering this incredible, the thing America is the best in the world that is having this incredibly fertile soil, education, business, the social fabric is venture so capital. welcoming. Venture capital, but just you can come here and become an American. Yeah. But I've had people who are you know, European say, the problem with America is there's no like soil. Anybody can become an American. I'm like, that's the advantage of America. I've never met a more American person in my life than my father. Yeah. A kid who grew up in a village in Jordan, right? What? He said, this is the country I want to raise my kids in. They, people respect you. They, you can have great friends, but they also leave you alone. You can do what you want, right? And it's a great place. You can get educated. It's wonderful. What's more American than that? Literally flew around the world with nothing and nobody, Right. That is literally the most American story on the planet, right? Yeah, and it's also very. Cl- I mean, you know, so not only is it an important thing to do for the uh, the survival of the U.S. sort of biotech industry or Ec- just in general biotech industry, overall economic and yeah. technological leadership position in the world. That, yeah. by the way, is what we derive our military capability and our power from yeah. as well. But it's, it's also utterly close tied to in. you personally. I mean, Absolutely, you, you saw it, right? I mean, I like, saw it. It's, it's happened to almost everybody in yeah. this country, but for you, it was. Immediate. You're, yeah, you're a generation above you. So. Exactly. It's immediate. And, and you know, I, I also see having spent my entire youth in places like Johns Hopkins and Caltech in a lab. So many people in those labs came from China or Eastern Europe or Africa or India. And they're like, oh, my God, do you have any idea how lucky I am to be in America? That, that sentence ends. Yeah. Right, and and they get to do this wonderful science, and they want to stay because America is an awesome place to live. They feel welcome. Yeah. Right. And I think the worst thing we could do as a country, the most self-defeating, damaging thing we could do, is the trend we're on now of saying, "Well, you know, immigrants are a, a problem and a risk," which I think is a bunch of nonsense. And the, but the, also when when you're in a lab and these people are like, "I can't believe that I get to be in this lab." in America but those are the people that are really really driven because oh, like your yeah. father they, they understand that they have this opportunity that they cannot mess up if, they got it you will like this is a big responsibility they've now. gotta do it yeah. I mean to go back to have to go back because things didn't work out if you got to America and you've got to go back because things didn't work out there is no more devastating humiliation for a person I don't care what country you're from that's interesting yeah I had really you, you have you gotta make it work I mean you got an opportunity 99,000 you know 999,999 can't get in your country you got it and another thing to be purely Machiavellian about it geopolitically we're getting the best and the brightest we're taking them away yeah you don't want them to go back what are you crazy it's true um, but to, uh, also, yeah, on, also on this topic. So the, I, I'm, I, if I feel really passionate about it, I'm going to speak out. But do you also feel like it's important to do it so that the people who work for you see you do it? Absolutely. Half our, half our company is immigrants, I think, or something more than that. We, we did the numbers. Um, it, it's interesting. Almost half of our American citizen employees are immigrants. Half of your American citizen employees? Oh, are we Weren't born in the United oh, States. Oh, oh, yeah. Almost half. Wow. It's California. Yep. Right? Yep. So... So it's part. It, it, it solves that problem too. Is if you're going to speak out about it, they know that you are invested in them. I had a number of employees, coworkers of mine, come into my office after I started speaking up on this stuff. Right when, in, in 2017, when the new administration came into power and started implementing all these policies that were visibly meant to show certain kinds of immigrants weren't welcome. Travel bans. You're travel about. bans. Yeah. The Muslim country travel bans, which are so arbitrary and capricious, and. Yeah. Nonsensical. They, if you're going to target certain countries, you're not even targeting the right ones. You know, you're just being punitive. The, the, the palpably more difficult time you have getting people H-1B visa extensions and green cards, you know, it's gotten worse, notably worse. Um, people fearful, you know, in tears in my office, and they were so thankful that they felt like, oh, maybe it's not all lost. Basil and all these really important guys out there are talking about it and saying, no, we shouldn't do this. We should, we should stand up for immigrants or what our strength is. Made them feel so good, right? Yeah. Course, and of course I can relate to that. Because even though it's funny, I can often be in a group, and I'm the American. I was born here, raised here, right? And because of my appearance, 
and my name, they think I'm the immigrant or the foreigner, right? That's just the default, Yeah. right? So I can totally relate to that. Yeah, I think that's it. Okay, great. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Okay, that's it. Thank you, Basil. J.P. Morgan is hectic. There are a lot of meetings to be had, more so for him than for me, for sure. And I appreciate you carving out the time to, to record that. Thank you to the Midwest Quiet for use of your music in our podcasts, because we have two now. We have launched Forum. You can find that wherever you find your podcast, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever. You can subscribe to it there. It is a look at recent papers published in the biotech and bioengineering space, sometimes in our journal, sometimes elsewhere. And we discuss those papers with leading researchers in the field. Sometimes I do those interviews. Sometimes it is our research editors. There are three episodes out now. Look for it. You might enjoy it. Uh, And if you want to talk about that or anything else that we do, anything else that Nature Biotech does, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. You can follow us there. I don't think, um, yeah, I think that's all you need to know. Thank you and goodbye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 